Hello and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we look at the life of Queen Sandak of Shilla, one of the states in the Three Kingdoms period of Korea. Sandak was the first ruling queen in the history of Korea, perhaps only the second or third queen regnant in all of East Asia. She helped lead Shilla through a period of turmoil and set it up to be the kingdom that united the Korean peninsula. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 3, Episode 3, Queen Sandak of Shilla, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Sandak was born probably just a bit before 600 AD. China, unsurprisingly, was the dominant power in East Asia. Emperor Wen of Sui had united China for the first time since the 3rd century. In Southeast Asia, the Chenla Kingdom had begun to dominate the region over the old Funan Kingdom, as detailed in Season 2, Episode 9 on Jayavarma and the Seventh. Srivijaya was just emerging in Sumatra, and probably hadn't expanded throughout the rest of Indonesia yet. India had seen the collapse of the Gupta Empire and was disunited, ruled by multiple kingdoms and empires. The Sasanian Empire was strong under the great King Khosrow II, ruling from the Hindu Kush mountains to their border with the Romans at the Euphrates River. The Byzantine Empire, at this point the only remaining Roman Empire, ruled from the Euphrates west all the way to Tunisia in Africa and parts of Italy, including Sicily in Europe. Emperor Maurice was dealing with financial difficulties, in part brought on by its expansion west, and was probably in the midst of writing his Strategicon on Byzantine military strategy. North of the Balkan Peninsula, the Avars ruled the Pannonian region, possibly east into the steppe north of the Black Sea. North of this were tribal Slavic territories, and east across the steppe was held by the Turks. Charlemagne was still nearly 200 years away, and Western Europe was subdivided into a number of kingdoms that were at times united, at times not, like Neustria, Austrasia, Burgundy. The Lombards were still only in northern Italy, and the Visigoths held most of Spain. The Angles and Saxons had started to push the Britons further west on that island, and the small kingdoms of the Heptarchy began to emerge. South of Byzantine Egypt, the kingdom of Aksum was still powerful in modern-day Ethiopia and Eritrea, although their days of colonial rule over Yemen were probably over. The Ghana Empire was probably in its infancy in western Africa, but that may have been a few decades away. In the Western Hemisphere, the Maya were in their classical period, while Teotihuacan was probably still highly influential in central Mesoamerica. The Wari Empire was emerging in the Andes, that other cradle of American civilization. Now, let's get into what was going on over on the Korean Peninsula. 
it was a time now called Korea's Three Kingdoms period. Those three kingdoms, Shilla, Bakje, and Kogoryo, fought each other and allied with each other in a set of shifting alliances constantly. Sandak would eventually rule over Shilla. Shilla's origins were in the southeastern portion of the Korean peninsula. One walled city called Saro, or Shiro, led a confederacy of nearby cities. This was probably around the 50s BC. It remained a regional power for the next few centuries, but not a truly united kingdom. It wasn't until the Kim clan took over, around 350 AD, that Shilla was considered more of a true kingdom with a real centralized authority. It was recognized by the Jin dynasty, the most powerful of the kingdoms in a divided China at the time, and the biggest power of the region. It is possible that Shilla power had concentrated in royal authority a decade or so before that, but this is sort of the traditional dating for Shilla becoming a kingdom. By the 400s AD, as I said, the Korean peninsula was in what was known as the Three Kingdoms period, and of course there were four states. Okay, there were those three kingdoms that I named earlier, and a fourth, smaller confederation of city-states known as the Gaia Confederacy. All of these states were subject to some amount of domination by the larger Chinese empire nearby, at least when it was strong enough to do so, like during the Jin Dynasty. But the Korean states, although derided by the Chinese as backwards, and eager to adopt many of the laws and cultural norms of China, kept their own unique identity throughout this period. In an article in the Journal of Korean Studies, Chong Sung Kim called Shilla the most backward of the three kingdoms. This is in part because it had the least amount of direct communication with China and didn't adopt many of the administrative and technological advances from China until after the Kogoryo and Bakche did. In the 5th century, the northern kingdom of Kogoryo, which held large amounts of territory in southern Manchuria, from as far west as the Liao River in China to as far east as the bay which today overlooks Vladivostok, to as far north as the Sungari River where the modern city of Harbin sits. Aggressively expanding south, Kogoryo, under their king Kwangeto, whose name literally means broad expander of domain, broadly expanded their domain. They pushed south against both Pakche and Shilla and moved their capital south to Pyongyang to get a base of operations closer to their enemies. In 433, Pakche and Shilla formed an alliance to try to stem the tide. Kogoryo kept pressing, and by 475, they had taken the Pakche capital just south of Seoul. Soon, they took the entire Han River Valley. Seoul sits on the Han River, but after it passes that city, it runs southeast for many miles. Together, the Pakche, Shilla, and Gaia Confederacy held maybe two-thirds of today's state of South Korea, probably even less than that. Kogoryo held everything north of that well into modern China. The Pakche retreated south, and they were significantly weakened. The Shilla too were weakened, but both were able to check Kogoryo's expansion further south beyond the Han River Basin. Shilla and Pakche, after the latter had moved its capital south, formed even closer ties with royal marriages and launched joint military campaigns. 
According to Taydan No, in an article, A Study of Kagorio Relations Recorded in the Shilla Annals of the Samguk Sagi, quote, Shilla dispatched relief troops to succor Pakche, and the king removed his residence to the safety of Myungwal Fortress. This reflects Shilla's sense of crisis at the time. Shilla's armies acted in concert with the armies of Pakche and Kaya to rebel Kagorio's assault. Later, in 484 and 494, Shilla again joined forces with Bakche and obstructed Kagorio's attacks. And in 495, when Kagorio's armies attacked Pakche's Cheyang Song, Shilla responded to Pakche's appeals for support troops and repelled the invasion. The Shilla annals record further accounts of battles between Shilla and Kagorio in 496 and 497. Unquote. All the while, Shilla was also developing into a more ordered society. They began to organize more internally and became a state more on par with those of the time. According to Lee Kai Baik in A New History of Korea, quote, Shilla had taken the step of fixing the right to the kingship in the House of Kim. The six clan communities were reorganized into administrative districts bringing a step closer to fruition the design for centralization of governmental authority. Shilla achieved important advances in its agricultural technology, as plowing by oxen was introduced and, from about this same time, irrigation works were carried out extensively. The resulting increase in agricultural production must have been one factor in promoting a change in Shilla society. The foundation thus having been readied, an administrative structure fully characteristic of a centralized aristocratic state was created in Shilla, unquote. This was particularly evident in 520 when a new law code was written. It probably laid out what is known as the bone rank system, a system which defined the aristocracy in a way that was common among the states in the region, although the bone rank system itself was unique to Shilla. It essentially divided the people up into different categories, and these categories dictated what levels of government people could occupy. The highest levels were the bone ranks, Sungol, or hallowed bone, and Chingol, or true bone. Beyond bone rank, there were six other rankings, the numbered head ranks. Head rank 6 was the highest, head rank 1 was the lowest. It was all determined by family lineage. In other words, instead of talking about royal blood, like in Europe, we're talking about royal bones. The Kim family or clan, and only certain members of those, were hallowed bone rank. Sandok was one of the few living hallowed bone people when she took the throne, which was part of the reason she was able to do so. Not long after her, the hallowed bone lineage died out, and kings had to come from true bone people also of the extended Kim family. There were other true bone people, such as the Pak family, where the ruling Kim clan found their queens, and at least one family from the Gaia Confederacy. It might be that this was a royal family in one of the confederated states, and they surrendered willingly in order to enter the kingdom with high status. Beyond the true bone ranks, it seems that head ranks 6, 5, and 4 were what Lee calls the general aristocracy. How high you were able to climb the ladder, both socially and in terms of career, was dependent on your ranking. 
A soldier with head rank four might be the most formidable military commander Schiller had ever produced, but he wouldn't be able to be the supreme commander of the army. From Lee, quote, holders of true bone rank could advance to the highest official rank, that of Ebal Chan. But holders of head rank six were restricted to no higher than the sixth office rank, holders of head rank five to the tenth office rank, and holders of head rank four to the twelfth office rank. These limitations naturally were reflected in the appointment to official positions. It's a little confusing between the head rank and the office rank, but essentially the five highest official levels of title. And if you're a U.S. government employee, the GS system comes to mind, a GS-12 or a GS-13 or what have you, were numbered one through five, with one being the highest. Only people with true bone rank could hold any of these offices. If you were a head rank six, the next best bone rank, you were shut out of those level jobs. The highest level job you could get was six. And if you were a bone rank five, the highest level job you could get was a 10. But it wasn't just about jobs. The ranking system defined how long your house could be. Don't get caught having a rank five sized house if you're only rank four, you know. It defined other parts of life as well, but it served to bring strict order to society. Lee continues, quote, Regulations based on bone rank governed official attire, vehicles, and horse trappings, and various utensils. Needless to say, in such a hierarchic society as that of Schilla, predominant power was wielded by those who enjoyed the highest hereditary social status, namely those of true bone rank. And since the core element within the true bone rank was comprised of the royal house and that of the queen's, it may be asserted that Schilla society was dominated by these two lineages, unquote. This resulted in a rigid caste system of sorts, and you couldn't really move from one caste to the other. Anyone below head rank four was essentially the peasant class. Kagorio and Pakche, too, had official ranks and rules about who could be named to what position. Schilla also had a legendary military unit known as the Huarang, which translates to something like the Flower of Youth, although they are also called the Flowering Knights. They were probably a pretty ancient order by the time of Sandak, at least a few hundred years old, perhaps dating to the formation of the Shilla state. The Huarang were first and foremost an elite military group. They trained together and fought together. Beyond that, though, they had a strong association with Buddhism, and were trained at one point by a Buddhist monk named Wan Guang, who taught the Huarang right around 600 AD, after they had already been an established force. He laid out a set of five rules for them. The first rule was loyalty to the king, or queen in the case of Sandak. The second was serving one's parents with devotion. The third was fidelity or trust in friendship. The fourth was to never retreat in battle and the fifth was to never murder or kill unnecessarily. Assumingly, this meant outside of battle. Of course, they were warriors, so although they cared about these Buddhist concepts greatly, they probably spent more time practicing horsemanship, archery, sword fighting, and the like. They were established as an important part of the Shilla military, certainly by the mid-500s. And by the mid-500s, Shilla's power was growing and it was able to start absorbing the Gaia Confederacy's constituent parts. By 562, Schilla, as well as Pakche, but mostly Schilla, 
had incorporated all of the former Kaya Confederacy into their own kingdoms. Also around that time, probably about the year 550, Shilla had enough security in the south from their Gaia conquests and their Bakche alliance to turn north and start to retake territory from Kagorio. At this time, Kagorio was suffering from internal strife, and Shilla and Bakche, now allies for over a century, took advantage. Together they retook the vital Han River Valley. How this was divvied up isn't exactly clear, because soon after the conquest, Shilla turned on their allies in Pakche and pushed them out of the Han River region. The Pakche king, livid over the betrayal, turned then to Kagorio and formed an alliance with them. I told you they all took turns fighting and allying. Anyway, it didn't work out great for this king. He was killed in battle, and by the second half of the 6th century, Shilla controlled much of the Korean peninsula. Pakche still held the region southwest of the Han River Valley, and Kagorio held the region northwest of the Han River Valley, as well as a great deal of land in Manchuria. But Shilla held essentially the entire eastern half of the peninsula, and their control of the Seoul area and the Han River gave them a west coast holding, which offered them easy access to China. The sundering of the alliance with Pakche and Pakche's subsequent alliance with Kogorio put Shilla in a self-imposed tough spot, stuck in between two allied enemies with a war on two fronts. Because of that, Shilla began to seek out improved relations and trade with the Tang Dynasty in China. The Tang Dynasty was formed in the 610s after the collapse of the short-lived Sui Dynasty. The Sui Dynasty did not last past the founding emperor's son, but the unity of China that he reintroduced did, and the Tang Dynasty ruled over a large, strong China. In 632, the Shilla king, Jinpyong, who had ruled for just over a half a century, died without a male heir. Shilla was pretty strict about that whole bone rank system, so Shilla women who were of bone rank were at least socially very important. The society was still pretty darn sexist, but with no males left who were hallowed bone, rather than turning to the next level down, true bone, they turned to a female that was hallowed bone. That female was Sandak, the eldest of her siblings. And so, in 632 AD, Korea had its first female queen regnant, or ruling queen. She was the 27th official ruler of the Shilla, and was probably around 40 years old, perhaps in her late 30s, when she took the throne. She did not inherit a kingdom in a peaceful situation. Rebellions immediately flared up, and Pakche saw an opening with this instability, so they tried to invade again. She knew she needed allies, so she thought maybe Kagorio could help. Sandak had faithful members of the Kim family serving her, and one of these men, a diplomat named Kim Chunchu, was sent to Kagorio to try and get aid in her war against the Pakche in the year 671. The Kagorio had actually captured a Shilla fortress along the border and in the ensuing battle had killed Kim Chunchu's son-in-law. So he was sent to deal with the issue. The Kagorio, who were more than happy to watch the resurgent Shilla suffer, responded that, sure, they'd help, and in return, 
All Schiller would have to give them was the Han River and its surrounding territory. When Schiller did not acquiesce, Kagorio threw Kim Chunchu into prison. Sandak responded forcefully. She sent an army of 10,000 soldiers, led by the general Kim Yushin, to rescue him. Kim Yushin was Sandak's cousin and another loyal ally. When the Kagorio king heard of this, he decided he wasn't yet interested in all-out war at the moment and released Kim Chunchu. It seems that Sandak was satisfied with this response, and whatever sort of invasion she was planning was called off. But a full-on war was seemingly not far away, and in the meantime, the initial problem, a resurgent Pakche threatening her southern border, hadn't been resolved. Probably because of her armies turned northward, the Pakche had significant successes in 642, capturing some 40 fortresses, although how deep they went into Shilla territory isn't really clear. But it is clear that the kingdom was weakened, and she needed some help. So, in 643, she engaged with Tang China to seek an alliance. Tang, constantly at war with their immediate neighbors, the Kagorio, were only happy to provide aid. They, of course, saw it as a stepping stone to Chinese domination of not only Manchuria, but eventually to the Korean Peninsula as well. The Tang Emperor offered all the help she needed, as long as Sondak was willing to allow a Chinese prince to rule in her place. This was not, the emperor insisted, because China wanted to rule the whole of the Korean peninsula and was hoping to get a quick diplomatic path to doing so. No, he was worried that, because Sondak was a woman, her enemies in Pakche and Kagorya were encouraged to attack, and a man in charge would calm things down right away. She declined the offer. She was a good enough of a negotiator, though, that she was still able to secure Tang assistance. They sent armies north to take on the Kagorio in a joint offensive, but it didn't work out well, and they were defeated. Schiller suffered from this as well, and in 645 AD, she sent 30,000 troops north to attack Kagorio in conjunction with a Tang attack from the north. Because it didn't serve to crush the Kagorio, it gave Pakche more opportunities. They were able to take seven fortresses in western Schiller while Sandak and her army were preoccupied with the north. Subsequent attacks by the Tang into Manchuria returned no better results, and Sandak wasn't able to get China to defeat Shilla's northern neighbors for her. The Tang eventually changed their approach to a slow war of attrition against the Kagorio. This actually made Shilla a more vital ally as they could help keep the overextended Tang supplied, and would eventually lead to a tighter alliance. While spending much of her time occupied with warfare and international relations, Sandak was also a prolific builder, and with the relatively recent embrace of Buddhism by the ruling class, the result was a whole bunch of Buddhist temples and schools. But it wasn't just schools and temples. Sandak was also interested in science. She commissioned the building of a tower called Chumsung Day. It looks rather nondescript today, but Chumsung Day served as an observatory under Sandak, probably the oldest in all of Korea. It was used to map constellations as well as better know the change in seasons to help farmers improve timing of their crop planting and harvesting. Located at the Shilla capital of Gyeongju, 
which was also the cultural and scientific capital of the kingdom, it may have been part of a larger scientific and research compound within the city. It's a round tower that sits upon a square base, and its construction has some interesting quirks to it. It contains nearly 365 bricks. Scholars can't quite agree on the number, but that almost certainly is meant to symbolize the days of the year. It has 12 layers of brick above the window in the middle of the tower and 12 layers below it, perhaps symbolizing the months of the year. In the year 647, the queen's advisor, Pidam, staged a revolt, stating that women could not rule. He wasn't just any advisor, though. Pidam was her sangdeduang, meaning something like lead advisor, or let's say prime minister. He held the post for about a year and a half, and may have been planning the revolt for much of the time. He was likely from the Kim or other related family. Of course, nobody who was not of true bone rank could serve in that role. The revolt didn't last long, though, and Kim Yushin defeated the uprising after only a few days. But Sundok did not actually live to see the end of this. She died before it was over. None of the sources I've seen point to any evidence that she died of anything other than natural causes. And our main source for this period, written in the 12th century, makes no mention of a murder. But she died at the beginning of a 10-day uprising by her prime minister, so it is an outside possibility. Even if Pidam succeeded in getting rid of Sandak, and again, there's no evidence that he did that, he didn't fulfill his stated goal, which was to get females off the throne of Shilla. Sundok was followed as queen by her female cousin, Chindok. Chindok ruled for six or seven years, and together with Kim Yushin, the Shilla began to push the Pakche out of their territory. After she died in 654, there was nobody left of hallowed bone rank, and the system had to be modified a bit. True bone rank became good enough for the throne, and so the next king could come from what had previously been considered the high nobility, but not, as the French might say, princes of the blood. The one that took the throne after Chindok was Kim Chun Chu, that diplomat who had gone to Kagorio and had been tossed in the slammer. He was instrumental in forming a tighter alliance with the Tang dynasty, and this probably helped his efforts to be the next king. He took the name King Muyol, and was the first king since the introduction of the system that wasn't of true bone rank. Muyol was actually the grandson of a king who only ruled Shilla for three years. He was considered a usurper, and the leading nobles ousted him. His children were barred from the throne, but were kept as part of a tight-knit royal community. So, when the last person of hallowed bone rank was gone with the death of Chindok, he was an acceptable choice. Kim Chun Chu led the resurgence of Shilla together with his old pal, King Yushin. They brought together a massive army to finally crush Pakche, and the alliance with the Tang dynasty came to fruition thanks to significant forces they provided. In 660, near the city of Huang Sanbal, a greatly outnumbered Pakche force was annihilated by the Shilla army and Pakche was soon absorbed into the Shilla kingdom. Muyol died soon after that, and he was succeeded by his son, 
who also happened to be Kim Yushin's grandson because Muyol was married to Kim Yushin's daughter. So, the two Kims who helped Sanduk so much when they were younger became even bigger contributors to the strength of Shilla as they got older. This son who became king was about 40 when he took the throne. His name, after taking the crown, was King Moonmu. Moonmu had probably had some significant roles in his father's administration. It is thought he may have been closely involved in the negotiations and relations with the Tang dynasty. Pakche made a brief resurgence under one of their princes who had fled to Japan, but his reign as the new king was short-lived, and they were finally really defeated within about three years. With the end of Pakche to his south, Moonmu was able to look north towards Kagorio without worrying about an attack from behind. In 661, the Tang sailed upriver to try to take Pyongyang. They were defeated, but decades of conflict and battles against China were taking its toll on Kagorio. It had a king, but was actually ruled by a general who put a puppet on the throne after a coup. After the general's death in 666, a power struggle ensued within the kingdom. The generalissimo's younger son took the throne, and his eldest son fled to China. But the deceased general's brother fled to Shilla. According to Li, quote, Loath to let slip such an opportunity, Tang mounted a fresh offensive under Li Qi in 667, and Shilla launched a coordinated offensive. This time, the Tang army received every possible assistance from the defector Namsang. And although Kagorio continued to hold out for another year, the end finally came in 668, unquote. This was all great news for Shilla. With Kagorio and Pakche gone, they had unified the Korean peninsula under one state. And that's what this period and kingdom is called, unified Shilla. There was one problem, though, and that was the Tang. China was a massive, powerful entity. Think of it this way. If some kingdom in, oh, let's say first century Anatolia, turned to Rome to ask for help defeating its neighbors, how long after those neighbors are defeated would you suspect that small kingdom to have any independence? Of course, Tang had allied with Shilla so that they could become, at the very least, a subservient client kingdom, or even better, just a province of China. China had created multiple commanderies within Pakche, and with the demise of Kagorio, they did the same there. They also established something they called the Protectorate General to Pacify the East, based in Pyongyang. And it was clear their intention was to rule over the whole Dang Peninsula. But Shilla had other ideas. King Moonmu and Shilla allied with the remaining Kagorio royal leadership, helping to get whatever was left of their forces under them. The leader there ended up as a sub-king to Moonmu, which maybe was more than they expected from Tang China. As for those Chinese in former Pakche territory of southwest Korea, the Shilla launched an offensive there, and they were able to force the Tang out by 671. China tried to counter with another invasion, but they were driven out again. A battle in 675 between Tang and Shilla had different results depending on the source. The Shilla claimed this was the point where China was defeated badly enough to realize they needed to withdraw from the peninsula. The Tang sources claim a victory, 
which was probably only really plausible if it was a costly one and the emperor just decided it was too much effort and too expensive to continue his presence there. Either way, in 676, the Protectorate General to pacify the East was officially moved north to modern-day Liaoyang, not far from the large modern city of Shenyang, well west of the border between China and North Korea. From Li, quote, The fact that Shilla repulsed the Tang aggression by force of arms and preserved independence of the Korean peninsula is of great historical significance. Clearly, Korean society and culture would not have been able to develop unhindered under Tang political domination. This constituted the foundation on which the development of the society and culture of unified Shilla rested, and what is more, it laid the groundwork for the independent historical development of the Korean people, unquote. Now, it's worth noting that the unified Shilla had other neighbors still. The Parhe or Balhe state to the north was a successor state to Gagorio and soon threatened Shilla, albeit from further north and at least initially from a weaker position. But unified Shilla lasted another 300 years. By the end, it had stagnated, and a new Three Kingdoms period emerged, with rebellious states claiming to be the descendants, not necessarily literally, of Pakche and Kogorio. Shilla was eventually weakened to the point that the last king, in 935, abdicated his throne and his territory to his large neighbor. This kingdom, Goryeo, once again unified the peninsula. This unification although it did eventually change hands to a new dynasty, lasted about a thousand years. Shilla oversaw the initial unification of the peninsula and was instrumental in keeping the Korean culture and independence alive. Queen Sandak was a crucial part of this as she came to power at a time when the three kingdoms were fighting constantly and Tang China was powerful enough to help pick a winner. She led Shilla at a time of great transition in Korea. The neighboring kingdoms were attacking, and a resurgent and unified China was trying to absorb, or at least lord over, the whole peninsula. Sondok witnessed some military gains, but also some pretty big losses. All the while, she transitioned Shilla, giving it stronger diplomatic and administrative positions, which would be key to its ascendancy on the peninsula. Her ability to keep her kingdom in one piece, despite coordinated attacks from Pakche and Kagorio, helped it to survive the onslaught until the alliance with China bore fruit. And her diplomatic successes helped bring that alliance to bear without forcing Shilla to lose its independence and identity, something that was not only crucial in the unification of the Korean peninsula, but in the development and sustainment of Korean culture. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm very excited for what comes next, a two-parter. And then I'm pretty excited, probably a bit more nervous for what I've got planned after that. Maybe a six-parter, I'm not quite done with it, on what may be the first modern popular revolt, or at least the first modern secession in Europe. As for the two-parter coming next, Next episode, we'll travel to the medieval Mediterranean to begin a two-part series on two men, a conquering adventurer and his successor, less a warrior 
and more of a strong administrator who united the kingdom that the first one had begun to build. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>